The reading today is from Haggai chapter 2, starting at verse 10. And you can find this on page 949 of the Church Bibles. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment and the fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil or other food, does it become consecrated? The priests answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priests replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer, offer there is defiled. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Please uh, teach us now. Help us to be ready to listen. Amen. So we're in the last bit of Haggai. And we are going to be thinking this morning about the relationship between obedience and God's blessing. From this day on, the Lord says... I will bless you. That's what it said in the passage. God said that to his people, the Israelites. He says, from this day on, I will bless you. That would have been a wonderful promise to have received. Wonderful thing to have heard. Because life for God's people up until this moment had been tough. We read that their crops had not yielded as much as they had hoped for. They weren't in starvation, but it it just hadn't produced as much as they were hoping. And their vines had not produced as much wine. And even what they had had been wrecked by mildew and hail, it says. But all that was going to change. God was going to bless them. A bright future lay ahead. They had turned to the Lord in obedience, and now God was going to bless them. But it was important that they understood the relationship between the obedience, which for them looked like starting to rebuild the temple, 
the obedience and the blessing. What's the relationship between the two? And we need to know this as well. Now, we're going to think about this in three parts, and you can see them on the back of the notice sheet that was on your chair. Uh, You'll see on the back of it there are three uh, headings, and so you can follow through there. And our first point is, obedience doesn't make a person holy. So, in the passage we are on, it says, the 24th day of the ninth month. In our calendars, that's the 18th of December. And this is a significant day. We see a little further down in the passage, this is the day when they celebrated the laying of the foundation of the temple. If you were here, been here the last couple of weeks, you'll know this is a point in Israel's history where the temple has been left in ruins for a long time. The people had returned to the land after the exile, and they were told to rebuild the temple, and they started, but then they fizzled out after not very long. And they focused more on their own houses than on the temple. But now the Lord, in chapter 1, instructed them to rebuild the temple, focus on God's house and on doing his work. And they started. And on this day, this 24th day of the ninth month, it seems like they turned up with their shovels and their hard hats or the equivalent, whatever they had back then. And God's message to them was... From this day on, I will bless you. But that isn't how the message began. No, on this day, the message begins in a slightly different way. A question is put to them. Have a look at verse 11. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil or other food, does it become consecrated? Now this feels like a slightly odd way to begin. God, asking this question, uh, takes them to, as it were, some meat that has been in the temple. It has been consecrated, therefore it is holy, it is set aside. And the, ask, the question simply is, will that meat, by touching something else, some other bit of food, make that other bit of food consecrated, holy? And the answer is an easy one, because the priests would have known this, everyone probably would have known this. The answer is no, it doesn't make that other bit of food holy, it just doesn't do that. And then the question changes. Verse 13. If a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. So that is, um, in the Old Testament law, if you touched a dead body, um, then you became unclean for a period of time. It wasn't necessarily wrong to do that, but you did become unclean, and there were things you had to do to sort that out. And this is saying, God is saying, look, if you, as an unclean person, touch something else, touch a bit of food, does that become unclean? And the answer is yes. In other words, this is saying, consecration or being holy isn't contagious, but uncleanness is contagious. Defilement is contagious. Now, let me give you another illustration of this using these jugs of water. You've got... um, nice clean water and you've got very unclean water this is water which has got soil from the flower bed out the front by the way whoever uh, looked after that flower bed this week it's looking lovely out there thank you for that that's a 
complete aside. But anyway, it, some of it's in here, okay? Now, this water, you could drink nice. It's, it's straight from the tap, okay? This is clean. If I put some of this in this jug, it doesn't make this clean, does it? You wouldn't now want to drink this. But the other way round, so in other words, the clean doesn't make the unclean clean, does it? We know that. And the other way round is infectious, isn't it? So you could drink some of this. But even if I put just a little bit of this in, do you want to drink that now? No, of course not, because it's now unclean. The unclean is contagious, the clean isn't. Now, why is God telling his people that? The answer is in verse 14. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, he declares the Lord. Whatever they do, whatever they offer there, presumably in the temple, is defiled. Why is it defiled? Because you are unclean. The people are unclean, and your uncleanness infects everything. And just because you do something good and right and obedient, that doesn't make you okay. It doesn't make you clean. And it doesn't deal with all your uncleanness in every other area. And you need to know that, people of God. And you need to know that now because God is about to say to them, I'm going to bless you from now on. And they might think, oh, so us starting to rebuild the temple, that made us all right then, did it? Because God's now going to bless us. We, we must be okay. We must be holy because we did the right thing. Just as they might have thought before, oh, well, we, we, we did the sacrifices at the temple. Surely that makes us okay. That makes us holy. No, because your unholiness, your uncleanness in every other area of life infects everything, including those good acts, and therefore makes you unclean. Let's bring this to us. Obedience to the Lord is very important. The Bible is very clear that we are to obey the Lord. But we must not think that our obedience in one area makes us right with God. So, more clean water, unclean us. Okay, just because in our lives maybe a change takes place under God's word, we read in God's word that we shouldn't tell lies. And so we stop telling untruths, so we do something good. Does that make us clean? No, it's a good thing to do. We should be obedient, we should obey God's word, but it doesn't actually make us clean, does it? Or uh, let's say we start doing our quiet times, Bible times every day, really good thing to do. We're still unclean though. Or uh, we start coming to church, and we come to church every Sunday. Great thing to do. Still unclean, though, aren't we? Or uh, not getting angry. Uh, or being kind. Don't worry, I'm not going to overflow it. 
but we're still unclean. Just because we do one good thing, one obedient thing, it's a good thing to do, we need to do it, but it doesn't actually make us holy, does it? It doesn't make us clean. Let's apply this a little more sharply to some current issues. Just because we believe what the Bible says about things like sexual morality, or gender, or sanctity of life, just because we agree with those things, and just because we obey those things, if, if, you know, to the extent that we can, and none of us are perfect, that doesn't actually make us holy before God. It's good that we get those things right, but we're still unclean. Because uncleanness infects everything in our lives. We're still not right before God. So they and we needed to know, obedience in one area doesn't make a person holy. Second point. The second point is God's incredible blessing. So having thought about a little bit about the relationship between obedience and blessing, you know, well, actually it was about obedience and holiness, wasn't it? Obedience, uh, one act of obedience doesn't make us holy. Now the passage goes on more to talk about God's blessing. He says, this is how I'm going to bless you. This is the incredible blessing that God gives. And it is overflowing, incredible generosity, particularly keeping in mind that God is saying, look, you've not suddenly become holy. You've not suddenly become clean. But this is God's blessing. And he says, note, it is from this day on. And God repeats that three times. Verse 15 he says, from this day on. Verse 18, from this day on. Verse 19, from this day on. The blessings that the Lord describes start then. Verse 15, the Lord begins, he says, from this day on, and then takes them back, actually. Verse 15, have a look, he says, now give careful thought to this, from this day on, and then he does a flashback. He says, consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. And actually, he takes them back to themes from chapter one. He says, remember how things used to be, how unfulfilled your lives were, how difficult things were. Things just seemed to shrink. There was never enough food or wine. Uh, and even what you had was wrecked. But yet you didn't return to the Lord, he says, verse 17. But now, says the Lord, from today, he says, mark it in your calendar. You can see that um, uh, in the passage. Verse 18, from this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, he's saying, look, circle the day in your calendar. Remember this day, the day you laid the foundation stone of the temple. And he says, is there any seed still in the barn? He asks that, verse 19, is there yet any seed left in the barn? And actually the answer would be no, because the seed has now been sown. No. And he says, verse 19, end of verse 19, from this day on, I will bless you. And that would make them excited. The seed is in the ground. What's the harvest going to be like this coming time? The Lord promises beforehand so that they will know it is his work marked it on the calendar to see the link between the abundant harvest they're going to get and the foundation of the temple. 
and the blessing that would flow. And he's saying, make that connection. And then the blessing becomes even greater. Now here I'm going to read for you the rest of the passage. Verse 20 onwards. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. So this isn't just about them having abundant crops. Now the blessing, like, like water, there's another water illustration, coming out of a hose, it sort of suddenly then sprays out into the future. It, it, initially it's just for them then, their crops, that they would have loads of crops. But then in, these, in this next prophecy, it sort of spreads out to the world and to, through history and becomes much, much greater. He says that God will shake the heavens and the earth. There'll be an overthrowing of nations and powers. The promises of global reordering, of the overthrow of chariots and drivers, horses and riders. And we look at the world and we see it is in desperate need of that reordering. And God promises it will happen. And he makes a promise to Zerubbabel at the end. This is the governor of Judah, the one sort of ruling over Judah, uh, but he's not king, he's under, under the Persians. And he says, verse 23, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. He says, I'll make you like my signet ring. Now that is very significant. The signet ring was worn either around the neck or on the finger and bore the owner's name or mark. And it is the wearing of that ring that is significant here. It symbolizes possession and enjoyment of a close personal relationship. And the Lord says, Zerubbabel, you will be my, like my signet ring. And this promise undoes a promise that was made to Judah's last king before the exile. Zerubbabel was not king, but the last king of Israel was told this. King Jehoiachin, king of Judah, he said, God said to him, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. For his disobedience and the disobedience of the previous kings. King Jehoiachin, God said, if you're like a signet ring, I would take you off. But now, Zerubbabel, the governor, God's saying, now I will make you like a signet ring. So in other words, you're back on, you're back close to me. Here's the Lord's blessing. Don't worry, I will explain the relevance for us. Here is the Lord's blessing. That the world would be reordered and that Zerubbabel, who is a governor in the line of King David, will be someone significant. Maybe he will rule. Maybe he will reign. Except that we don't see that immediately. Zerubbabel sort of disappears a little bit in terms of history. There, there isn't a massive reordering of the nations and Zerubbabel doesn't rise to a place of prominence. 
And this is where we need to see that all the Old Testament promises point forward. The fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, which look like they will be immediate and all delivered at once, turn out to be long-term and have many fulfillments. We've used this illustration before, but it's a helpful one. In thinking about Old Testament promises, they can be like a mountain range. Okay, a mountain range with a whole load of mountains in a row, lots of different peaks. If you look at it from the end, it looks like just one mountain close to you. If you go to the side, you see it looks like many peaks and it's, got a, and it's a long range thing. So too with the Old Testament promises. There can be times where it feels like this is all going to come at once and now. And yet as you look to the side, you see actually it's got many peaks. There are many fulfillments of God's promises. So here. We would expect the reordering of the nations and Zerubbabel to become king straight away, but it doesn't happen immediately. Let's see the mountain range from the side, and in order to do that, keep a hand in Haggai and turn to the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. So that's page uh, 965. And actually, we're going to start a sermon series in Matthew's Gospel next week. We've got Insight coming to visit us, which is great, and Tim Neal from Insight is going to preach. Uh, And I very kindly gave him the beginning of the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 to preach on. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Um, But come to that genealogy and go to verse 11. So this is the genealogy of Jesus. In other words, this is Jesus' family tree going back. Going forward. Verse 11. So we're not going to go right from the start of the genealogy at this point. Verse 11. Josiah, so one of the kings, the father of Jeconiah. Now, Jeconiah is the same as Jehoiachin, you see in the footnote. So, Josiah, the father of Jehoiachin, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Exile. Verse 12. After the exile to Babylon, Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah, was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Here is the governor of Israel that we've been thinking about. And it goes on through the genealogy until you get to verse, uh, verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So this promise that was given to the people and to Zerubbabel, you go, well, we don't see it fulfilled straight away. No, you don't. You've got to go on. See the mountain peaks. It goes on and on until you get to Jesus. And he is the one who will do the reordering of nations. It hasn't happened yet. We still look forward to it. But he is the great king. Zerubbabel points forward to So in Haggai, do you see the promises of blessing are outrageously great? Yes, for the people of Israel, that they would have abundant crops. But more than that, that there would be this king who would come, that there would be a reordering of nations, and we still look forward to that. This promise is far-reaching and far beyond our imagining. And it all focuses in, actually, on Jesus. Incredible, staggering promises. And the Lord is saying to his people back then, in spite of past rebellion, the blessings will be abundant for them and far beyond them. 
So the blessings are staggering for them and for us. And God says to them, you obeyed and I bring blessing. But don't misunderstand. It isn't that your obedience made you holy. So why does God bless them? If they're not holy anymore, why does God bless them? Why does he restore Zerubbabel? Oh, you've got to go back to Haggai. Oh, I shut my Bible. <laughs> That's a mistake because I rely on the contents page. 949, thank you. Okay, you've got to go back to Haggai. You guys were obviously still there. I can't hear any turning a page. Maybe you're doing it on your phone. Here we go. 949. Okay. Why does he bless Zerubbabel? Why does he bless God's people? Last verse. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. That's why they're blessed. It is, our last point, God's grace. It's not, he's not saying, oh yeah, you did the right thing, now you're holy, now I can bless you. He actually says, no, you're still unholy, but I am choosing you. I'm choosing to bless Zerubbabel. That's why it is. It is God's grace. Not because you deserved it, Zerubbabel. You don't. You're, still, you're not suddenly pure. It's because I chose you. That's what God says. Now that does create a problem for us, doesn't it? How can God just decide to pour his blessing on impure, unclean people? The Old Testament law made it very clear, the unclean can't be in God's presence. He can't just ignore their impurity, he can't just ignore our impurity. Well, that's a tension in this book, isn't it? How can he do this? Travel down the timeline again, go through the mountain peaks again, and come to Jesus, the great king, who in Mark chapter 1 was with someone who everyone knew was unclean, a leper. And everyone knew, you touch that leper, you become unclean. It's this principle again. The, the clean doesn't make the unclean clean. No, the unclean makes the clean unclean. You touch that leper, you're going to become unclean. And yet Jesus goes to that leper and touches him and says, I am willing, be clean. And he was. This is the only person in history who's been able to do it this way round. Everyone else, they touch the leper, they become unclean. Jesus touches the leper and he makes that leper clean. And ultimately he can only do that because he takes our uncleanness onto himself and deals with it at the cross. How can anyone be made clean? It is only by coming to Jesus and for his death to be in your place that he can make you and me clean. Your act of obedience won't make you clean. Coming to church won't make you clean. Having right theology won't make you clean. It is only Jesus who can make you and me clean. If you haven't yet come to him to be washed clean, 
You need to come to him. You could do it today. Now, what does that mean about our obedience and blessings in our lives? Because there are blessings. You do your daily quiet time, and yeah, God does bless us. At times with closer relationship with him, with greater knowledge of him, greater delight in him. You obey God's instructions, say, in marriage, and there are blessings. It goes better. We pray, and the Lord does bless us. Now, of course, there are times when it doesn't feel better. You know, we obey the Lord, and sometimes life feels harder. That doesn't mean it's not a blessing, but sometimes obedience can take us into very hard places. But there are other times where you obey, and actually you, you sense God's blessing, and it, it's a wonderful thing. Okay, let's apply what we've learned in this passage to that kind of situation. By thinking of an Israelite at the end of this harvest, having sown the seed and having got in a crop which is far greater than they've ever experienced before. I mean, it's abundant. They're delighted with it, staggered by it. What is that Israelite to think? He's to remember, his mind is to go back to the day the foundation of the temple was laid, that day in his diary, and is to think... It was because we turned to the Lord. We turned to the Lord and the Lord and we obeyed the Lord. But he also needs to remember it wasn't that our obedience made us holy. They were and still are unclean. Rather, it was an incredible gift of God's grace. And therefore his heart would not be arrogant or self-righteous but filled with thankfulness and all the more eager to obey out of thankfulness for God's grace. So for us, as individuals and as a church, maybe you've known times in the past when you obeyed the Lord and the Lord blessed you in some way. Uh, maybe, uh, and of course we, we pray that this will be true for us in the future individually and as a church family we want to seek the Lord to obey the Lord and we pray the Lord would bless us as a result I pray he will that he would bless us more and more that we would obey him and see his blessing maybe in terms of greater delight in him maybe in seeing more people one for Jesus when he does remember it's not because our obedience made us holy. It is all his gift of grace. And therefore we will praise him and thank him all the more for his grace and want to obey him all the more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. Thank you for the reminder that uh, though we must obey you, yet our obedience doesn't make us holy before you. Only Jesus can do that. And therefore, help us, Father, to have the right attitude towards your blessings to us. That when you bless us, when we obey, that we would not become self-righteous or arrogant, but all the more thankful for your grace and generosity towards us. Amen. Amen.